Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, thank you, uh, Pastor Jordan, for your invitation to be here this morning. Thank you, musicians, as always, for your expertise and your preparation, and for everybody else who's uh, done work to have things ready today, the people back in the booth, thank you for all the work that goes on to uh, undergird this uh, worship service effort. You know, I've taught in seminaries for almost 30 years, and I've observed that uh, when pastors of a local church are invited to speak at a seminary, as they often are, to speak in chapel, so we have pastors come and speak in chapel, they feel like this is their chance to straighten the seminary out. <laughs> so I've heard quite a few sermons on the spiritual coldness of seminaries, usually by preachers who never went to seminary. And uh, also sermons on how there's too much emphasis on academics. Also sermons on how spiritually dead seminary professors are. Remember, seminary rhymes with cemetery. Now, I always try to be open to repentance as a seminary professor, and uh, we all need to repent, I think, probably every day. But it can be a little tiring to hear mainly negative sermons. And when I was teaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago for 14 years, I kind of observed that on days when pastors came to preach, often not very many professors came to chapel because they usually knew what was going to happen. They were going to get the blowtorch. Well, now a seminary professor is at your church. And you may be thinking, here comes a negative sermon, or an abstract sermon, or a boring sermon, and I think I can do all three, but that's not my intention. Today I want to commend this congregation and encourage it. Commend and encourage, that's my goal today. And uh, to do that, I'd like to set before us four short verses from the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have, for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Of course, that's the title of the sermon, the word of the truth, and you could translate that, of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, as I said, my message today is one of commendation and encouragement. Commendation for your commitment to Christ, and for many of you, commitment to this church over the years of its formation. And then encouragement because this is a most favorable time for growing as a congregation. When you look at the church in international perspective, which is one of the things I want to be doing this morning. And the reason I say this is that the truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture, the truth of what is preached here and confessed here 
and lived out here, that truth has unprecedented verification in this 500th anniversary year of the Protestant Reformation. And by verification, I mean two things. First of all, missiological verification. By missiological, I mean the gospel booming in places where churches were planted by missionaries in previous generations, where there used to be no churches or just a few churches led by Westerners and maybe attended mainly by Westerners. Today we see the gospel making inroads in former non-Christian strongholds around the world like never before. And a lot of this development is quite recent. Uh, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, I'll be preaching somewhere in a township in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, these will be people that are either tribal, so under apartheid they were called black, and they lived in certain kinds of slums, or it will be another demographic in South Africa. The, the blacks are 80% of the population. The whites are 10% of the population. There's another 10% of the population that's a demographic that under apartheid they called colored. And these are people of Indian descent or people of mixed race. And 50 years ago, almost none of these people would give Christianity the time of day because of the oppression of the white overlords. But the Lord has swept through these township areas, and where I've been ministering now for uh, three years in South Africa, mainly in the color demographic, these are huge ghettos, slums with a, uh, a murder rate five times that of St. Louis, which is high, but people being baptized and people coming to faith by the thousands every month. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, missiological verification of the gospel. I'll say more about that. Then there's academic verification. And by that I mean academic publications that defend the truth of Scripture. We're used to seeing things on Discovery Channel or CNN around Easter or something that tear down the Bible and say, well, we've discovered, you know, Jesus' wife or something, some crazy thing that is always coming up in the media to discredit the Bible. But actually, there are publications defending the truth of Scripture and its message, like rarely in the history of the church, and not only in English language scholarship, but increasingly in many languages and many cultures around the world. But let's look again at our Colossians text. The Apostle Paul was in prison when the Holy Spirit inspired this letter from his pen. But the Word of God was not chained. It was not imprisoned. That word of the truth, as Paul called it, the good news of Christ's coming, his death for sin, his conquest of death by his resurrection, and his exaltation to God's right hand, that truth of the gospel, he says, is bearing fruit, and it's increasing across the Roman world. Maybe 100 million, 110 million people in the Roman Empire, and then beyond, because within the lifetime of the apostles, for example, the apostle Thomas took the gospel to India. And from there, it would have gone even further east in the early decades of the early church. Wouldn't it have been great to see that back in the day of the Lord and his apostles? Has there been anything like it since? Well, yes, there has. And it's going on under our noses. 
And here's a brief story to illustrate this missiological verification I've been talking about. A colleague of mine in South Africa and I just finished up a book uh, on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone. And when we got the chapters written, then we needed a dedication for the book. And uh, we came up with this as the dedication. This book is dedicated to the memory of all African Christian martyrs, but especially those who made the good confession as Protestants. Now, you can easily question that dedication from here in the U.S. Isn't it odd to dedicate a book dealing with a matter that impacted world history, the Protestant Reformation, to a tiny minority, martyrs, of a distinct minority, Protestants, on a single continent, Africa, that hardly qualifies as a Protestant bastion. When you think Protestant, you probably don't think Africa. But is it so odd? Our dedication contains this supporting statement. In 1900, African Protestants were 1.7% of the world Protestant population. By 2000, a third of the Protestants on the face of the earth were to be found in Africa. Right now, it's projected that 40.8% of the Protestants on earth are in Africa. And by 2050, it'll be 53%. And this doesn't count African Protestants on other continents. And they are sending out missionaries, and there are very large churches like in the Ukraine and in Europe that are pastored by Africans. <laughs> because so few, so few Europeans believe the Bible anymore. West County Presbyterian Church has come into being in an era when your younger members will, see, will, will live to see world Protestantism become Africa majority, if projections hold. By comparison, today just 16% of Protestants in the world are found in Europe, where the movement began, only 11% in North America. And Asia has more than either at this time, 18%. By 2050, Europe will have just 10% of the world's Protestants. North America will shrink to 8% of the world's Protestants. And Asia will hold steady at about 17%. So global trends in Protestant growth are stunning. The challenge for us in the US is the growth is coming in other places. Our numbers are at best stagnant as a percentage of the world population. Yet it is still the case, you know, in your worship bulletin, uh, the Lord is God, I think is the theme today. The Lord is still God, no matter what is happening in North America. And the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to us like it did to the Colossians, across the whole world is bearing fruit, and it's increasing. And we see this missiologically. Now, I just mentioned Africa. Two years ago this July, some of you may remember that uh, I preached here the whole month. I think in your church history, that's called Black July. But I was here, and, and during that month, I pointed out that Christians in China will surpass the number of Christians in North America in the next roughly three years. 
and the Chinese Christian population is going to surpass the whole U.S. population by sometime in the 2030s. On many fronts, we see the gospel going forth with power. And this should encourage us. It should encourage us. It's very good news that this is happening. And it should renew our longing to see gospel surge in our hearts and in our land and not just elsewhere in the world. But I mentioned also academic verification. Academic verification of the truth of God's word. It dawned on me recently, with books stacked up around me and new ones coming in, that, that uh, a lot of these books were books on the inerrancy of Scripture, on the truth of the Bible. And a bunch of them were published in 2016. And uh, I counted eight such books without you know, doing any kind of a search. These were just books that had sort of drifted in like snow into one of my offices. And I've got several of them listed there. You can read the titles. One is edited by John MacArthur, although a lot of Reformed people uh, contribute to that. And uh, uh, R.C. Sproul writes the introduction to it. Cohen and Wilder, John Piper. If you got 2013 there, that means it was written in 2013. The rest of them, they're all written in 2016, which is like the year before the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. There's a slew of books that come out on the truth of the Bible. Then a book by Kevin Van Hooser, probably one of the best of the lot. And then another slide, books by Matthew Barrett, D.A. Carson, which is a, a bomb of a book, like 1,200 pages. Uh, Peter Lilback and Richard Gaffin edited a very important source book. And then Mark Knoll wrote a book about the rise and the regard for the Bible uh, since the discovery of uh, America, so to speak, by Christopher Columbus and, and how the Bible has fared in pre-colonial times. Academic verification of the truth of the Bible. And then I have to mention a book like this. This book is by Nabil Koresh, and I highly recommend it. It's the second one of his books. The other book that he wrote that was on a bestsellers list was Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And that's more his testimony. He's a Pakistani uh, ex-Muslim, a brilliant person, and uh, trained in medicine, but now has set that aside and has, is doing a New Testament PhD at Oxford. Has anybody read uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? Well, this book is the sequel to it, and this book is more the evidential side. It, it, it talks more about his pilgrimage, the questions he raised uh, as, a, as a Muslim apologist, how he would answer Christians and how he knew he was right and how he and his father would debate, you know, and, you know, they were a great debate team until they ran into Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona, who are Christian apologists. And, and through various means, God got hold of him and God helped him to see that the arguments for the truth of the Quran don't hold. And the arguments for the truth of the gospel claims, like, like that Jesus was crucified, the Quran teaches he wasn't crucified. Somebody else was crucified in his place. But Qureshi realized that uh, you, can't, you can't really sustain that unless you just blindly believe that, you know, because the Quran says it, it's true. The evidence, whether you're a Christian or not, and this is one of the things he does in the book, he quotes lots of non-Christians who say Jesus was crucified. You don't have to be a Christian to believe Jesus was crucified. 
So this is academic verification, and this is not a book only academicians can read. Probably everybody here could read it with profit. But it's striking. It's just striking to read the power of the truth of the Christian message, message to somebody who all their life has been grounded in hostility toward it. And I guess, you know, I'm especially moved by this because from 19, well, first I went to Egypt in 1989, but especially from 95 until 2012, uh, twice a year, I, I went to Sudan and, and uh, for some of those years taught Muslim converts. And I, I know how hard it is for them to come to terms with the fact that, uh, for example, Jesus is the Son of God. So this is a book that is uh, something I, I have often prayed for, that God would raise up Muslims who could write clearly and persuasively in ways that will, will address Muslims, because they just don't believe somebody like me because I'm a white devil. And uh, when one of their own says it, they may try to kill him, and he's living with death threats all the time, but they can't just say, well, he's just a Westerner. He's a Pakistani, and he has excellent credentials to uh, uh, you know, have believed in Islam as fervently as any of them did. Now, I could go on and talk about commentaries on Romans. They're occurring, they're appearing uh, every year in this new century. We don't have time to go into these all, but, you know, Romans is the crown jewel uh, of books in the Bible that present the gospel message. And uh, two-thirds of these books are written by evangelical Christians. Not all of them are, but two-thirds of them are. And a lot of them represent the life work of that scholar. So, you know, it's like God is doing something, not only in Africa and China, he's doing something in academia. Now, the question is, is it a, a sign of things to come, or is it a dying gasp? And I don't know the answer to that. But while you can debate the quality of all this, you can debate the value of it, as far as the volume, I don't think there's been an equal burst of output in the history of the church on the truth of the Bible or the message of a book like Romans in such a short time span. But what does it all mean? And I go back to the sermon's title, The Word of the Truth of the Gospel. The academic evidence indicates that God is on the move in our lifetime, like seldom if ever before. Many fine, recent, highly competent studies furnish strong grounds for confidence that Holy Scripture, which is much maligned in our age, is nevertheless worthy of our interest, our devotion, and our trust. And I hope all of us are in the Scriptures every day as God calls us to be. Excuse me, not only is the Word of God running, but my nose is running. For this reason, for this reason, you're to be commended for taking God at his word, and for building a church with a clear commitment to God's word in an era where many church groups continue to sacrifice their commitment to the word of God. They say, well, to, to, be, to be marketable, we've got we to dial it down. We, gotta, we, we can't have so much Bible and so much truth here. We've got to be more like they are out there, and then they'll like us, because we'll be like they are. And of course, that has never worked. They always say, well, why don't you just go ahead and be honest and be like us? Since you don't really have the courage of your own convictions and you think ours are the wave of the future. 
You're to be commended because you're doing what you do in the firm of assurance, in the words of Paul, of the word of the truth, the gospel. So I commend your faithfulness. And when we think of faithfulness, we don't want to forget one of the most stirring and sobering reminders. And if anybody here is a kind of Christian, you know, this is a gut check. This is a gut check. The martyrs. The martyrs of today, not of church history books, not Fox's Book of Martyrs, but the martyrs of today remind us how worthy they find God to be, and that's worthy of their dying breath. One agency says that uh, 1,207 Christians a year die as martyrs. And that's open doors. And they limit their count to eyewitness accounts. Actual, verifiable people who die for the Christian faith explicitly for that reason. There's another way of reckoning that, and the Center for Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell says 90,000 a year die. And it's not a question of whether that many die. They do. The question is, what's their status as Christians? So, for example, if a mother gets executed, but she has seven kids and, uh, and a husband, uh, that's nine people dying, but open doors would say, well, just one person died, because she's the one that got executed. The rest of it is just collateral damage. They don't count that. But um, the Gordon-Conwell Center includes everybody who's died as a result of being a Christian in things like war. So when ISIS goes in and slaughters a bunch of people, Open Doors only says, well, the people that died that were Christians are the people we actually can document their names and how it happened and you know, what they said before they died and so on and so forth. But the 2,000 people that got killed, we don't count that because we can't document in every case that they were actual Christians. But that's uh, 247 a day. So if we're here for an hour this morning, then that's 10 people while we're sitting here are dying as martyrs, as Christians. Just one a day is a sacrilege that God will avenge. But in spite of the martyrs, and perhaps in part because of them, prospects for the gospel word remain bright in the world. And I say that not most of all because of missions, and not most of all because of academics, but I'd like to look one last time at our text, because it really holds the main reasons for the growth of the gospel. And I want to give four reasons here at the end for the future being bright for the word of the gospel. The future is bright for the word of the truth of the gospel first because of who underwrites it, and that is God. If you look at our four verses in Colossians, a name for God, father or son, is found eight times in those four verses before us. We probably didn't see it when we read it, 
because we just, we just gloss over the word for God in our text when we read them because we see it so much, you don't see it. But it's, it's the dominant word. A word for God is a dominant word in those four Colossian verses. And this reminds us of the conceptual center of this whole Pauline letter. If you look at the major significant words used in Colossians and you count them up to see what the author talks most about, you get this picture. And I've given you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Those are the words that occur most frequently and the number of times of occurrence. So Christ occurs 25 times, God 21 times, Lord 16, then you can see flesh, body, man. Jesus occurs seven times. If you add up the words for deity, 25, 21, 16, and 7, you get 69 explicit references to God in just 95 verses of the book. And the fact is that all the New Testament letters agree that what matters most to the writers in terms of what they talk about the most is God. And God, in sending Jesus, has sent good news, the best of news into the world. God is a name that you will find, and this, this took me all night, you know, to, to uh, I stayed up all night getting this number, 4,688 times in the ESV version. Now, happily, I have software if that will tell me that, and I don't have to stay up all night finding it. But in your Bible, if you have an ESV, the word God occurs 4,688 times, and he is the one that explains why we're here this morning. He made the world. He's king over it. And I want to share just seven other commendations of God in the book of God, the Bible. I call upon you, for you will answer me. O God, God's accessibility. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God is our protector. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. God is illuminating for our lives. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's reliable. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Still reliable. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? God is incomparable. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God is compassionate. God is caring. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And finally, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God is eternal in his magnificence. The future is bright for the word of the truth of the good news of Christ because of who is underwriting it, none less than the one who is the very greatest, God. Number two, the future is bright for the word of the truth of the gospel because of how God makes his benefits accessible. Note verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Faith. You don't have to be rich to come to God. You don't have to be righteous to come to God. By the way, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't come to call the righteous because there aren't any. So you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to have the right clothes to wear to come to church. You don't have to be pedigreed 
or degreed or successful, living up to a Chesterfield standard, you don't have to be highly esteemed by those who think their approval matters. You know, we all live around people that we know look down on us. But that doesn't matter. What matters is God's assessment, and we access God through faith. You just have to hear the word of truth, the gospel, and turn from yourself and your sin to God and receive that word that you hear into the depths of your soul. Open up to the God who addresses you. That's what faith means. It's informed, trusting consent. Faith is informed, trusting consent to the God who offers you forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. John 1.12 says it about as well as anywhere, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The future is bright for the word of the truth of the gospel for a third reason, what it is you receive. We read at the end of verse 4 of our text that Paul has heard of the love that you have for all the saints. Saints here means other Christians. Christians at Colossae, Christians at Ephesus, Christians like Paul, Christians like Timothy, Christians everywhere. When the Colossians came to faith, something happened inside them. And it happened among them as a group. And Romans 5, 5 puts it this way, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Love is one of the strongest forces on earth. Now, hate is very strong, too. And it often looks like hate is winning. But love has God on its side. And so I'm going to say love is stronger than hate. Love for God is the purest force on earth. It's the purest force on earth. Love in marriage is one of life's deepest and greatest joys. The love between parents and children, the love between friends, the love between people that we meet in life, whether we work together, we're in school together, we're in team sports together, we're in military service together, and especially combat, the God who is love made people in his image. And part of our image is the ability to love and the drive to love and to be loved. It's the biggest part of the image of God in which all people are made. Now, when you receive Christ through faith, God elevates your love game like it could never be otherwise. A new quality, a new level of life is possible. The future is bright for the gospel word because of the love that you receive and the capability to love 
that comes to you. It changes your life, it changes your relationships, it can change the environment you exist in. When I was uh, teaching in Sudan twice a year, I, 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 you know, I would be with a lot of the same pastors, there are between 120, 150 pastors there twice a year, and a lot of them, their life mission, as they understood it, was to love Muslims. It was a Muslim-majority country, the Sharia law setting. And uh, the people I ministered to in, in the conferences I was in, 99% of them, unless they were visitors, they were all from the south of Sudan or from the Nuba Mountains. They were all black Africans. And uh, their experience of, of Islam was murder and enslavement. The Arab majority Muslims in Sudan, they were in the majority because uh, uh, they had taken the land of the, the native Africans and uh, were, were engaged in a genocide, which is still going on in Darfur. And yet, a lot of these pastors had a deep love for their persecutors. And they openly shared the gospel with Muslims. And when I was there, I saw many Muslims being baptized. And I saw the power of love, both to deliver these black Africans from the hatred that their unsaved brethren were being consumed by. Thus, you have ongoing civil war in Sudan, and you can't blame the people who take up arms against the people invading their lands and slaughtering them. But what's ever going to bring it to a halt? What's ever going to bring, bring peace between these warring peoples? Only one thing, the Prince of Peace. And when Jesus Christ comes into the lives of people, even who are being persecuted, there is a new love. And if you want to read about this, read this book, and especially read the ending. Don't do it until you read the rest of the book. And uh, there's this, this ultimate a statement about love for the lost, in this case, Muslims. By a Muslim who wrote this poem of love and evangelism to her fellow Muslims just before her brother cut out her tongue and murdered her for converting. The love of God in the gospel can change the world. And that's a major reason why the future is bright for the word of the truth of the gospel. However backward the U.S. continues to be in thumbing its nose at God and his goodness, how he has made us to live lives of dignity and love of pure, lives of purity and love lives of decency before him, and however much North American society continues to revel in slovenliness and moral degradation, it will be true that the pure and good love of God will be redeeming people in darkness and bringing them into light, and it will also be judging people who love darkness more than light. And then they will find out in the end that wasn't such a good idea. We live in an age in the United States that totters between euphoria woo, and despair. This whole country is high for the Super Bowl. It's amazing. Oh, it shuts down. And it quivers when stocks plunge. 
It's like somebody, it's like the president's been assassinated. What's happened? Well, the Dow Jones fell 300 points. <gasps> Jesus warned of a day when people would be fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. He said, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And if we're not there, we're close. But there's hope. It is laid up for you in heaven, it says in Colossians, and you know it, like the Colossians did, through your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So stay true to the word of the truth of the gospel. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we praise you that you have called us into this world and into this people of faith, into this family of faith, of old and of today. Grant us your joy, grant us your peace and the knowledge that you have given us a true word that truly is good news. I pray that you would set West County Presbyterian Church apart ever in respect for your word and fidelity to it. Unite us in your praise and your purpose as we labor to live that gospel and make known through the gospel the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.